Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Alex Wise, Head of Australia at Castle Hall, which is a global due diligence firm. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me today. So I thought today we should kick off with um, a very pertinent story, which is that of Wirecard, um, a pretty amazing failure that's that's happened. It it seems to raise a lot of issues around due diligence and maybe the failures of due diligence. Can you give the listeners a bit of a backdrop to what were the problems with respect to Wirecard and, and why maybe people have missed this this giant fraud? Well, Wirecard is a really interesting affair. Um, first of all, from the perspective of the evolution of fintech, Wirecard replaced Commerce Bank into the DAX German uh, exchange um, and, and effectively became the first fintech company to, to be uh, featured on that um, on that company list. And then effectively, you know, Wirecard also then became the the first company to go into liquidation from that um, exchange. So the the issue was that there's a number of issues that kind of uh, play out from the, the the affair. First of all, has there been an audit failure? Um, and there's been a lot of uh, coverage out of the UK in the UK media with regards to this. Um, secondly, you know, is there a real business operations risk um, that was missed? Um, and, and we can talk a little bit about that. Thirdly, into just some kind of common sense checks. And, and finally, um, something which which does crop up often with regard to major frauds is, is the kind of cult of the CEO. So from the perspective of going back to the the audit. And I think that what's important to do is, is whilst we think about this in the context of due diligence, is to think about, you know, when we're carrying out due diligence, perhaps on a fund manager or an investment fund vehicle, um, what are some of the lessons that we can learn from, from Wirecard? Um, so to, to begin with, going back and, and looking at the audit um, aspect and, and what happened there, just to give a little bit of background, is that there were a number of uh, partner organizations that were supposedly reporting data uh, into Wirecard with regards to the number of transactions and hence the revenue that Wirecard was receiving. Um, now, it appears um, that, uh, that, that some of that data was not correct. Uh, and, and furthermore, it appears that there were large supposed cash balances that just didn't exist. Um, so from a due diligence perspective, one of the first things that you, know, that you want to look at when you're looking at a fund and a fund manager is where is the cash? Where is it held? Is it safe? Have I been able to verify that independently? Um, and from a funds perspective, you do that by speaking to the custodian, uh, by looking perhaps at the administrator, by looking at some statements, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so finding out where the cash is is, is always a, a major issue. The, the second kind of area that comes out of the audit relationship is regards to you know, where, are the, uh, where is the, the, the auditor's commercial relationship? Um, from a funds perspective, you say, well, is that with the fund manager or is it with um, the investors, the partners, et cetera, into the fund? 
but very much like in the commercial world where the auditor's relationship is effectively with the company, not the shareholder, um, there is a, a similar uh, a kind of structure with regards to funds because the relationship is with the fund manager. So, you know, carrying out due diligence, I mean, even from audit firms, they rarely reply to, uh, to questions with regards to, are you actually the auditor of, of this uh, fund? So, you know, you have to be able to verify those important relationships. So the second point um, with regards to the Wirecard is, is looking at the business operations and were the controls, the internal controls effective? Um, so remembering that Wirecard is a fintech payment and reconciliation company, this is what they're experts in. But I mean, according to some of the reports coming out of the UK, it was actually using uh, spreadsheets and unverified spreadsheets with just summaries of information um, that were effectively the data for its underlying transactions. Now, you know, if you put that to a common sense test, it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, post event for you and I thinking about this have, you know, it doesn't ring the bells of saying, well, this is, this seems sensible for a, a fintech company to be relying on these rudimentary accounting methods. Um, secondly, what they did with regards to those spreadsheets was have a, a plausibility assessment. So rather than a, a verification, um, it's just said, well, do these, uh, do these spreadsheets of, of the data of our transactions look right? And how did they check that? Well, again, according to the reports, it based, they basically checked it back to the sales forecast. So to come into a well-known funds example, this would have been akin to, to looking at Bernie Madoff and Bernie saying, yeah, I'm going to be up 1.5% next month. Um, and sure enough, the results came in. He was in one point, up 1.5%. Well, that's great. We don't need to do any more due diligence on this. Um, so an, a number of kind of um, concerning aspects uh, that have arisen there. Um, into, you know, the, the sort of third and, and sort of fourth key lessons. So in terms of common sense, and, and this is something we've seen a number of examples of, um, the FT reported about a, a major uh, a bank supplier supposedly to Wirecard. They went and traced that address and it was, it was just a residential address in a, a unit block in, in, in a suburb of Manila. Um, and, you know, there's a recent sort of example here in Australia as well. There's a lot of furore regarding a um, defense contract last year uh, for a company called Paladin, whose so-called global HQ was a beach shack on Kangaroo Island. Um, so just making those kind of really basic checks is, is, is vitally important with regards to, uh, to, to any kind of investment, whether it's a fund or in a company, just making those little common sense checks. Um, and then finally, you know, into the, the kind of cult or, or, or the, you know, the cult of the CEO. And, and in many cases in the due diligence, this could be other members of the firm that we're, we're talking to. But, you know, there's a real strong lesson here to look at the data and look at the facts um, and be skeptical of that smooth-talking individual, whether it's a CEO or CFO. Certainly in the case of Wirecard and, and many others, um, it appears that there's been uh, large uh, holes in the balance sheet and, and certainly a number of funds examples where 
you know, people, whether it's the CFO or the COO, have been making off with uh, with with investors' cash. Look, it's it, it's an interesting example because you know you can say, well, hold on, shouldn't the fund managers that a lot of asset owners invest in what what were they doing? So that's that's one part of the conversation. The other part is that a number of asset owners, particularly in Australia, are now investing directly in in particular companies. You know, that it is direct investment rather than going via a fund manager. You know, uh, uh, you know, if we look at asset owners in Australia, are they actually doing this due diligence and really starting to think about all these you know really pertinent points? Well, from the asset owner's perspective, where, where they have to start from is a really robust due diligence policy. And, and that has to bring into account the scenarios of investing via a fund or investing directly. Because as you rightly point out, Alex, there's been you know a real trend to internalizing investment management and investing directly into companies. So the due diligence policy is there to manage those those uh, investments, but also from a fiduciary perspective, make sure that there's a robust process that is uh, that is being put into place prior to investing. So you know, looking at a, at a company directly, obviously, you know, if a super fund has internalized investment management, then they're going to have want to invested in that research capability that should be pouring through the financials, creating those models. Um, you know, this was effectively a journalist with regard to Wirecard that had very limited access to data that figured out that something was wrong. There are also a number of short sellers out there that, that figured out the same thing and, and went short the stock. Um, so, you know, there is a definite risk with regards to making those investments. But, you know, having a really deep and considered due diligence policy is the best way to start to counter some of those risks. It's interesting when, when you sort of give that example, I start to think about, you know, you talk about a journalist as being the person to uncover it. You know, is this is what, you know, is this something that, that asset owners also need to think about? Who are the types of people that you need to employ to have this tenacity to keep trying to understand if there is a flaw? Because it's very easy to close your eyes and, and make the investment, particularly in a market that's raging ahead. Everyone's doing very well. And Wirecard, you know, shares were doing very well for quite a long time. And so people think, well, there isn't a problem. So, you know, how do you try to also make sure you've got the right people in your team and the right due diligence that's there that are constantly being cynical, constantly questioning? <laughs> it's a, it seems challenging. Yes, that's right. And, you know, no, no one wants to deal with a constant cynic, right? That's not the person that you want to have necessarily sitting at the desk next to you. But um, in terms of the skill set for conducting research and, and due diligence, I think that's a really valid point. And, and it has to be a kind of persistent curiosity um, to get to the answers and, and go down those rabbit holes and, and keep asking uh, questions to, to be able to get comfortable. You know, a simple answer, you know, where is the cash? Well, you know, it's, it's in a special purpose company. Okay, well, where is it after that? Well, it goes through this bank or that work. Okay, well, where is it? You know, you have to be able to have that persistence um, to be able to get to the answer that you're looking for, not being fobbed off. And, and certainly journalists do have that, um, that skill set. Um, but as well, you know, from a professional perspective, um, accountants, lawyers, et cetera, should be trained in those kind of questioning um, techniques and have that curiosity to be able to drive to answers. Mm. 
you know, the other thing that comes up is you sort of wonder, uh, you know, you get these very large asset owners, how many, you know, particularly if they're internalizing, how many companies can you keep, you know, under control? You know, how, how can you keep managing so many investments if you really want to do a proper due diligence process uh, and understand all the, the nuances with each company and really try to get a handle on any audits, this business operation issues? How, how many companies can you potentially um, keep a close eye on? Well, indeed, and, and everyone's risk appetite is is different. But, you know, assuming that, you know, you've come to a conclusion in terms of where you feel comfortable with regards to the number of investments that, that you have, whether it's with companies or with fund managers, um, then it's a question of, well, how do we get to um, the answers of having that information that, that we want? And, you know, one of the ways is an effective use of technology. Another is an effective use of consultants and service providers to get that information to you. So all of that, you know, using all of those tools, there's no reason why, you know, you can't have an appropriate due diligence approach with regards to to companies and fund managers, um, but leveraging those providers and making the most of the services that are out there. It's interesting that you meant you mentioned technology in terms of the need to sort of look at these you know companies or, or fund managers, but I guess we've got a, another problem, which is coronavirus, which has sort of uh, impacted the ability of people to travel. It's a, you know impacted the ability of people to go on site, and we're we sort of operate in a virtual due diligence world. You know yes. how how does how does this virtual world now sort of impact the ability of people to really do their job as a due diligence well, consultant? Mm. The, the, the virtual world has had a number of different af- effects. And, and again, you know, investors have, have treated those uh, differently. Clearly, the number one effect is, is not being able to go on site. And that applies to fund managers that want to meet with their portfolio companies. That applies to asset owners that want to meet with their fund managers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, in order to carry out an effective virtual due diligence, you, you really need a strong commitment to transparency from the fund manager. Um, and, you know, being told that you're not allowed to access X, Y, or Z documents virtually is not helpful or conducive to, to, to getting the answers and doing the due diligence that you need to. Um, I think the good news is that on the whole, we've seen fund managers be transparent to the requirements of virtual due diligence, and, and, that, and that's really, really good, but, but not all. And we've certainly seen examples of saying, well, if you would like to see um, this particular agreement or this particular policy, you have to be on site, and clearly that doesn't work. So that's had a knock-on effect to many allocators um, who've said, well, actually, you know, we're not going to progress unless we can go on site. Um, the flip side of that is that, of course, you know, from an investor fiduciary perspective, do you want to be missing out on opportunities? Um, so is that, you know, finding that balance between going um, on site or the ability not to go on site and virtual due diligence um, is an imperative for, for asset owners now because, I mean, looking forward, who knows when we're going to be able to be uh, traveling again and, and, and carrying out those meetings. So, you know, there's there's been a lot of issues to do. I think that most investors on the whole, and this certainly bears out from the clients that we've seen globally, are being pragmatic 
um, and saying, look, let's use the data. Let's utilize all the information that we can get prior, um, you know, from a Castle Hall perspective, you know, we transition to, to conference calls and, and desk reviews of documents as the primary source of our information many years ago and left the on-site to being a kind of final uh, cog in the wheel of the process. Um, so, you know, so it's been a less of an adaption for us. But in terms of, you know, other investors and, and other consultants having to really address their model and figure out how best to get the information given the the access and transparency we have today. Yeah, you know, one thing that comes to mind as, as you sort of talk about that transparency is that a lot of people, you know, they need to see the whites of people's eyes. And I know you wrote an article for Investment Magazine around the power of the eyes in finding fraudulent actors. But then if I think back to the cult of the CEO and the these smooth talkers, you know, how important is it to be there on, you know, on site shaking hands with people? You know, are you being sort of misled potentially when you're on site? It's certainly a, a risk of that. And, you know, from the, the process of carrying out that important due diligence is really about, you know, getting as much information as you can from documentation, from external sources, whether, you know, you can start with sources in the public domain, then what the manager has sent you, then effectively moving into what you need to do from, um, from your own questioning and what questions are important to you. And I think that those answers don't lie. And, and often from a, you know, let's take the example of, of moving cash around and potentially that was an issue in Wirecard. It's certainly been an issue in a number of uh, funds, uh, misappropriation and, and fraud over the years. Um, you know, how many signatories can, can move the, um, the money around what processes do the bank have in place to verify that this is a true instruction? You know, is there a callback? Who's the callback to? Is it to the same person that initiated? So those binary questions, um, you know, they only have one answer. Now, you know, in the case of moving cash, uh, if there is only one signatory, um, then, you know, there is a potential for somebody with a lot of kudos and, and um, gravitas to be able to tell you why that's a good idea in this particular case. But the fact of the matter is the risk is still there. So look, I definitely agree with that premise that um, having that uh, the, the, the smooth talker that can potentially get out of those uh, questions is an issue. But you know, the importance that you place on the data, is this actually a risk factor or not? Yes or no? Can one person move the cash? Um, if they can, you know, what do you do about it? And do you have exceptions to that? So these are really important issues that investors need to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you've described sort of, we've just sort of compartmentalized as the initial, the introductory piece in terms of getting you know, getting acquainted with, you know, a company or with a fund manager, but there's also due diligence monitoring that needs to to continue through the whole process. You know, what what do you do after you've you've you know, agreed to a manager or you've agreed to an investment? You know, what what further monitoring goes on as part of that due diligence process? With regards to monitoring, I mean, we found a while ago that that effectively an effective monitoring program should take longer and, and take more person hours than that prior investment over a 12 prior investment due diligence over a 12 month period there's a lot that needs to be checked from an effective monitoring program and i think that this is an area um, where 
institutional investors in Australia could really improve based um, uh, compared to global leaders in this area. Um, but your first port of call with regards to monitoring really should be the public domain. What is going on in the public domain that infects that affects this relationship that I have? Um, has there been a media article? Is there a re regulatory filing that I need to know about? Um, has there been some kind of uh, litigation that's been initiated against the company? You know, perhaps we can find that on, on a public database, for example, in the US. So having a strong understanding of the public domain, because this, the public domain information changes on a real-time basis. So, you know, if there's a fund manager that's registered with the SEC, they could file a new update tomorrow, which has a massive impact on your perception of that uh, fund manager. So, you know, having a control over that. Second part is you know, what has the manager sent me? Have I read it? Have I had a consistent process? So, for example, um, the monthly letter that comes out or quarterly update, have I checked that and made sure there's no disclosures that affect my governance, risk and compliance assessment of this manager? And then on an ongoing uh, basis, every year for a commingled fund that financial statements are, are sent. Um, great example in the UK with a fund called Woodford, which went belly up last year, which was a really large institutional uh, level manager, but also a large retail business. Um, and, you know, there were plenty of clues in those financial statements that the liquidity of the underlying investment was not as potentially it was represented. Um, and, you know, yes, you know, making sure that there is a thorough review of those annual financial statements by investors is a really important step. Um, and then finally, once you've looked at the public domain, looked at what the manager has sent you, then in terms of, well, what do I need to do on top of this? What questions do I need to ask? How frequently do I need to ask them? Um, and, you know, reaching out to the manager and saying, look, you know, over the past quarter, what has changed? And, and obviously, a lot of investors are asking the same questions. Have there been any changes in human resources, any updates to policies, changes in service providers, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so, you know, making sure that, that those updates are done um, as well so that we know on top of the public domain and the uh, and what the manager has sent us an additional level of checks and balances and I think that there's a lot of improvements that can be made with regards to monitoring external managers I'm curious you know is, is there sort of the same emphasis on this monitoring this governance point of view from a a regulator point, you know, a, regula a regulator standpoint, it seems that there seems to be way too much focus on performance, you know, in actual returns perspective. I don't see the same sort of focus on the back end risk. You know, yes, you've got beta risk, you've got the standard deviation of, of returns, but is there enough work being done and focused on from asset allocators on that whole backside of, of risk? As I said, I think that this is an area where we can, you know, really as, as an industry and on an individual investor specific basis, get some improvements and um, having that active understanding of what's going on and what's changing at a fund manager in that kind of relationship. And, um, you know, you and I talked previously about the idea of this kind of vendor um relationship between a, a manager and an asset owner 
And if you look, if you transpose that to other areas of business where you have significant vendor relationships between a company and a supplier outside of financial services, that ongoing monitoring of those suppliers is extensive. And, you know, it's it's very much looking from a risk and reputational perspective. And that's something I think that, that in, um, you know, as, as financial services and asset allocators can learn lessons from other areas of commerce. Let's let's stick on that on that partnership piece because there is a very interesting conversation that you are hearing from a number of asset owners that they're working more closely with different fund managers as a partner. In some cases, the asset owner is asking the asset manager to help them with their technology project, help them with recruiting a CTO, for example. You know, you start to potentially uncover some some conflicts of interest when you get these very close partnership relationships. Um, you know, how do you sort of make sure that, that the monitoring is is still fair at the same time the partnership continues to to operate? It's a, it's a really good point, and I think it comes down to the conceptual relationship of of an asset owner and the investment manager. You know, it, is it the case that that investment manager is actually a, a vendor of investment services to the asset owner, um, and you know? We've seen a number of investors, global allocators, start to take that view to reconceptualize that relationship. And if you do that, then in terms of those monitoring frameworks, they have to be robust. Because as you've rightly pointed out, you know, being a partner, being at that level of integration between the manager um, and the uh, and the asset owner. There, there is potential, you know, there's a lot of co- uh, conversations that are going on with regards to those types of softer services around that. Um, and that's really what a partnership is about. But having that robust counterbalance, which is the ongoing monitoring and due diligence of that relationship, um, you know, looking at the manager from a reputational risk perspective, for example, um, an ongoing uh, focus and vigilance with regards to that. Um, you know, is there negative press? Have there been regulatory filings? Is the manager being sued for something somewhere? Um, you know, really having that deep understanding helps to balance out um, those relationships where there is a, a closer working relationship on a daily basis, which is necessitated by having a partnership. One other area that is sort of connected to to partnerships and so forth is sort of the difference in models for operational due diligence or at least the initial due diligence where you've got a situation where, you know, asset owners are asking managers to go and get their own due diligence reports. Now, when I when I hear that, it seems to me that this is just a rerun of the, the Moody's and S&P where they were, you know, writing reports for bond issuers. Um, you know, there's a clear, seems to be another conflict of interest. Is is this being really well thought about again in the in the local market? Well, I think the starting point for that conversation is regards to the efficiency of the due diligence process, and and having fifty investors asking a fund manager the same question fifty times um, is not necessarily a an efficient use of the manager's time and resources to be able to um, to answer that, that same question the same way. So, you know, if we started if we start looking at it from that perspective, there is inefficiency in the process. Now, how do we solve that inefficiency is the second question. One way, in a way that's that's been promulgated in Australia, 
um, is to have the manager pay for that report and issued to uh, a range of investors that are uh, open recipients of, of those reports. Um, elsewhere, what we're seeing uh, happen is for asset owners to come together and say, well, actually, you know, we don't want the fund manager to be paying for and, uh, and arranging this report um, that we're potentially going to be relying on. We're going to come together as a collective of investors. We're going to utilize a due diligence technology um, uh, provider, you know, like a Castle Hall or others that are out there to be able to aggregate that information in one place and then, you know, to have that consultant apply some uh, analytics and apply some subjective analysis to that so that we get the information from a conflict-free or potential conflict-free perspective, um, yet, you know, there's an efficiency for the manager because, you know, they have now spoken to five investors and five investors are doing it this particular way. So, you know, there are new ways that are going to emerge that allow us to tackle that inefficiency of due diligence without necessarily having the putting the reliance on a report that's not been engaged by us as the asset owner. Mm-hmm. So another area around due diligence that is getting so much you know, press at the moment is around ESG. Um, and I'm curious in terms of your thinking about whether ESG should be integrated as part of the investment due diligence process or should it be a separate team? You know, where does it sit? Well, from an ESG perspective, to, to look at the, the, the reasons for doing ESG due diligence is, is potentially where to start. And one of the reasons is to get a deep understanding of, of how mature that fund manager is with regards to the integration of ESG. Um, assuming, of course, that they're, they're saying they're integrating ESG, many fund managers will, will just say, look, this is not important for us. We're looking at other factors. Um, so assuming that they're, they're looking to integrate ESG into the investment process, you know, looking at the maturity of that, um, and then, of course, the spectre that's looming in the background is greenwashing. And um, from the perspective of understanding and, and, and not wanting to be caught out in a manager that's potentially exposed later in the press as, as really as a greenwasher, somebody who's presenting a nice ESG credentials, but is not necessarily um, walking the walk alongside of the talking the talk. So that's where we start from, from why we want to conduct ESG due diligence. There's another sort of connected area as well, which is looking at the manager themselves and are they culturally aligned with us as an asset owner from a um, from an ESG perspective. Um, but just focusing in on the effectively how to conduct ESG due diligence from that investment strategy piece. Look, I mean, we think that it should be segregated and it's, it's somewhere between operational due diligence and investment due diligence. Um a lot of the skills that are required to get to those answers are exactly those that that you alluded to earlier, that kind of professional curiosity, that um, potential cynicism, um, because, you know, that is valuable. Uh, but, you know, trying to get to the answers of, you know, what, how, to what extent and effect is ESG integrated into this manager's approach? Um, so having that sit independently, either as an independent report um, or as an independent team, um, is certainly a, a see emerging as the best practice way of, of conducting this type of work. 
Thank you very much for your time today, Alex. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.